Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The genre of the fantastic, science fiction, horror, and fantasy have long been one of the best outlets for metaphor. Because the rules of reality in genre films are as flexible as a pocket watch painted by Salvador Dali, lots of social commentary has been cloaked by creative storytelling. You are able to fill in your own thoughts about racism in George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, the Vietnam War and Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, communism and the Cold War and paranoia in both Don Siegel's and Phil Kaufman's versions of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But sometimes a film will step out from behind the screen of metaphor and blatantly put forward its social and political issues for all the world to see. One such film is RoboCop, a scathing and hilarious and bloody and horrifying satire of Reagan-era fear and loathing, the right-wing privatization of law enforcement through military strength and profit. It is a canny send-up of media and money and the powerful, crushing the people under the weight of its profits. Though it was produced under the shadow of Blade Runner and The Terminator, no one had seen anything like RoboCop before. Its intelligent political satire was a genre high-water mark, and the list of the talents who contributed to its excellence is remarkable. There's a new documentary series chronicling the creation of this amazing movie called RoboDoc, The Creation of RoboCop, streaming now on Screenbox. So now is a great time to pay tribute to this masterpiece of science fiction satire. Joining us to tell us about its history are co-writer Michael Miner and visual effects artist Phil Tippett. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me here to talk about something pretty momentous. Hi, Mike. Hey, Phil. I think the last time we saw each other was at that UCLA screening in 27, uh, 2017, something like that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I had a beard, and I went up to give Paul a hug, and he thought I was going to attack him. He didn't recognize <laughs> me. I, I, you've spent a lot more time around Ed uh, than myself, but I do want to say I'm a huge fan those little tiny bolts on the back of Ed 209's legs are, <laughs> I will say, frigging incredible. I mean, you, you, the details, the things that you did were masterful. Well, well I wish I could take credit for that, but that was the model was done by Craig Hayes design. Well, there so. are a bunch of terrific people involved in this, not least of which being Rob Botine and yourself, Phil, and Michael, you uh, co-wrote the script with Ed Newmeyer. Um, who conceived of it. Now, Michael, you came out of UCLA and you have a master's of arts degree, right? Yeah, uh, I was, um, I, film school, a lot of people, uh, uh, a slag on film school, especially its current form, but it really did give me contacts. Uh, people who still read my stuff, who I was with back in 1980 through 84, uh, uh, I, I learned how to operate a camera and um, learned a lot there, least of which was writing, which I sort of really learned on Robocop. <laughs> Ironically, Phil and the the maestros who, who John Davison brought in were the, the real veterans of uh, filmmaking. And Ed and I, I mean, it was our first, I had written two other scripts, but it was our first sale and our first, we, we were the rookies. So that's kind of ironic. And Ed was a studio executive before he was a screenwriter, right? So it yeah, it, it, it's it's funny how we met. You know, uh, make a left turn, make a right turn. Um, he saw a package of of short films, and mine was one of them. And I mean, I would take any meeting in the world at that time, trying to build my career. And I met Ed, and he had already worked out a, a first act for RoboCop, and when. Uh, he pitched it to me at lunch. I said to the waiter, 
I'll have what he's having. <laughs> and so um, we then wrote the spec script between October and December of 1984. And it pretty much stayed the way it was. Uh, it just got better and better. We were very, very, very fortunate. So it began as a social satire as much as a genre film, right? Yeah. Um, and and Ed had a, a, a insight into some corporate stuff. I was sort of the hippie in the woodpile. I think Phil can relate to this. I protested the Vietnam War. I'm eight years older than Ed. So uh, a lot of the satire invo involved in the, the end of the Reagan era, yeah. in the media breaks, and in the snide uh, dialogue, um, I can claim at least partial credit for so yeah, we went to we went to a bunch of protests back in the day when I was in college, and we would have uh, little knapsacks and and uh, backpacks. We put bricks in it because we were in San Diego next to Camp Pendleton. Wow, and I was I went to San Diego State and was protesting the Vietnam War at the same time. Yeah, so we bought bought you know the the sheriff's department was pretty much you know uh, DIs from Camp Pendleton. Oy. And they weren't very funny. And, <laughs> uh, you know, we get show up for an Angela Davis, you know, speech, and it it was like scary. Yeah, it was a. How old, are, how old are you? If I could ask Phil, how old are you? Uh, am I now? Yeah, seventy one. So was that UCSD or 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 San Diego State? I was going to a junior college in in San Diego. Palomar. Oh, I went to Grossmont College. Which one did you go to? Uh, Palomar. Oh, okay. So you were in North County. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting how the 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 those those movements, uh, the anti-war movement, um, uh, uh, equal rights amendment and civil rights amendments all became part. Originally, they were uh, protests. They were rebellions, and they became part of the main culture. Uh, it's a remarkable uh, thing that happened. Yeah, I've been, I've been watching, uh, going through the entire inventory of Alex uh, um, Gibney's documentaries. Oh yeah, you know, and uh, and, and just recently, and um, God, all of the you know details that I didn't know about, I just knew what was on you know the news of you know Reagan and you know Nixon, and just going through all of it, all all of the. All of Givney's stuff is pretty much about the hubris of people that rise to the top and believe that they're omnipotent, you know. Oh, we're not familiar with that today. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's where, as uh, uh, Foucault says, it's tyranny versus rebellion. Yeah, well, it's interesting because ours was the first generation that did not follow in the footsteps of our parents. We believe that there was another way to live and a, a a way where people came first rather than occupation. Very true. But thank God. Yes. And I don't know, we're struggling with that today as we did 40 years ago, but um 40 and 50 years ago. But what's great about Robocop is that it incorporates all that without hiding behind metaphor. You know, yeah. it's it's all up front. And it's really funny. And, you know, there's some exaggeration there, but not that much. It, for people who remember the Reagan era, it was a pretty nasty time as well, which we seem to be reflecting on these days uh, yeah. right at this time. So could there be a RoboCop from today that expresses the same sort of anger and, and rebellion? I think it would be more surreal. Yes. Well, you are a surrealist, Phil. Uh, your your movie Mad God is full of anger and the the machine against humanity. Well, it's it's not surrealist at all. You know, surrealists are about these juxtaposition, the wild juxtaposition. Mad God was pretty much a, a normal movie. You know. It, okay. It, well, it had a through line and. You know, I mean, it, it had a. But it has a story. Yeah. 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 Wait, and but, it's just, but, and everything's contiguous, you know, so it didn't have like uh, cut to the moon and then cut to a razor blade cutting an eyeball. Right. Right. It's not only. Phil, Phil's right. Yeah. Uh, surrealism has an element of satire in it, like the uh, 
fur-lined toilet seat, two things that are in the frame that don't belong there. Right. And and I think that that jarring quality has a satirical element, edge to it. What would a RoboCop be like today, Mike, if you and Ed were to put put together something that aimed at the same targets? Are they the same targets or have those targets moved? Um, I think they are the same targets, prob- probably uh, grown more uh, tyrannical and, and scary, which includes the panopticon and surveillance um, and uh, globalization, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, all meant to keep uh, the general public corralled. Uh, I, I think that uh, what's interesting about uh, imprisonment and law enforcement is that now everyone's behavior is being looked at. And we all are aware that we live in glass houses and some of us don't care, but um, if you get caught in the wrong stream, you can at least get canceled. And there's a form of punishment in that. And I, I, that didn't exist when we wrote the original Robocop. So there, there are a number of other tyrannical gestures and fences and walls. Um, and I think that the, the, the incarceration of minorities uh, and uh, ethnic minorities and racial minorities has grown uh, um, much more severe based on overpopulation, blah, blah, blah. Um, and there have been people who have made it okay to show your racism. Right. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the, the, the more things change, the more they get worse. <laughs> <laughs> Can I quote you on that? There's your T-shirt, Phil. Yeah. Um, but Phil, you started at a very early age with Crater Lake Monster. You created the puppets for that, if I'm not mistaken. Um, well, I started doing commercials in L.A., you know, and then, you know, I worked my mentors, you know, were working on their own. Like Poppin' know, Fresh and things like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, so, you know, one of my mentors, Dave Allen, uh, asked me to make Crater Lake Monster, you know, for another one of my mentors, Bill Stromberg. And uh, that was, yeah, one of the very first, you know, movies, you know, that I worked on. It, it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, well, Dave Allen and and, and you and uh, Jim Upperly and the like were very influenced by the great Ray Bradbury. Um, can you tell me when you first experienced and got excited by the idea of stop motion animation creatures? Uh, in 1955, 56, I was about five years old and, um, somebody had, uh, King Kong on the television and the, the TV sets back then were really tiny. And, um, I recall watching it from behind a chair <laughs> and, um, but, uh, and then that sent, sent me on this, uh, huge quest, uh, you know, dinosaurs and so i studied dinosaurs for years and years and years and then in 1958 ray harryhausen seventh voyage of sinbad came on and that was i was struck by a bolt of lightning at that time haven't you know been the same since that film has been so influential to so many film not just special effects artists but filmmakers themselves that it seems to have been particularly of this generation it it launched a lot of film careers it seems yeah, well, it was it was magic, you know. And one of the things that Ray was very careful with was to protect his magic, you know, and not let anybody know exactly how he did it. Unlike today, where you can pick up it's printed on the front page of the newspaper about how everything's done, you know, which kind of, which kind of destroys the magic. Yeah, well, in addition to stop motion, there was go motion which was a refinement. Can you tell me a little about how that worked? Well, as the, you know, Ray, um, you know, uh, lower budget movies turned into the, you know, bigger, you know, a budget movies. It really required something, um, you know, uh, to scale everything up by a notch. And I was visiting Dennis Murin and Ken Ralston. They were on the night crew. Um, on the first Star Wars, and that's when I was introduced to um, 
um, motion control is the first time I, I saw that. And um, animators, stop motion guys have been attempting to do motion blurs, uh, you know, uh, previously, but they none of them looked that great. Well, the the just so the audience understands in stop motion, of course, each shot is a posed figure. Every it's done one frame at a time, and each frame you move the figure a little bit to simulate actual motion to create motion on film. But right. because it's so stopped for each frame, there is it's lacking the movement that a normal uh, person or thing on a screen that makes a movement would have a bit of a blur. And so this was the idea of adding some blur to an inanimate object to make it seem more animate. Yeah, and we uh, first thing when we moved up north, just sat. Yeah, I'm doing an interview now. I'll call you back. Um, where were we? Well, we are talking about the creation of Go Motion. Oh yeah, so the first thing uh, we did when we moved up to uh, San Anselmo um, or San Rafael was uh, Ken um, Ralston and I hooked up. Uh, I had a, a puppet left over from uh, Joe Dante and John Davison's Piranha. It was a little fish thing. Oh, yeah. And um, we hooked that up, and we just had one axis at the time. And we spent, you know, part of an afternoon shooting some tests and, you know, at different exposures and, and um, you know, lengths of time and ran the dailies. And that was that. You know, and from there we just went on and developed more sophisticated, um, you know, uh, go motion techniques for what. Like How did and, you blur uh, the frame to create that sensation of motion? Oh, it was a pain in the ass. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I totally had to rethink how I um, thought about uh, pantomime and performance because, uh, you know, with stop motion, you're essentially sculpting in time. You know, and right. uh, with Go Motion, there's all the XYZ servo motors and rods that are going there. And so it was more like building up tracks, like musical tracks, where you would just do the forward momentum and run it back. And then you'd lift the leg up and run that forward and then run it back and then um, and set the leg down and run it back and da 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 da, -da for, for each thing. Uh, and so, uh, and at that time, that we were using the same um, system that they used to fly the spaceships. And so it was what they called on a velocity stick. You had like this little controller that would let the thing run. And, but I had no idea where I was in, in time. And um, so we had an assistant that would, you know, the, the, the computer at that time was a Mac that was like that big and it would count out pulses uh, on the stepper motors. And there was a, an assistant that would, we equivocated those to frames. So she would call out six, 12, 18, 24. So I knew where I was temporally. But what a tedious process. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and um, it was, um, I would say, you know, between 80 and 90% was you know, using the go motion technique and then um, supplemented by, um, you know, hands-on traditional stop motion. So, Mike. I remember in the theater for Empire Strikes Back when the uh, uh, elephant tanks came on, it blew everybody's mind i mean the even the three the even, the th even the three-year-olds what what was it the, the, the big tanks. walkers yeah the big, big walkers. walkers oh that that was empire yeah and th those were all done traditional stop motion you know kind of like ed 209 because the mechanical things really kind of lend themselves to that feeling oh um, oh the stuff rather than flesh rather than flesh and blood it's metal and wood and steel and so you don't really need that it, fleshy texture right well and, and you just buy it you know? yeah yeah oh it's just uh, i mean so that was more harryhausen than uh go motion yeah right so so michael during the writing of this how much thought went into 
how are we going to do this? Or was your mind completely free to be storytellers? Or was there practical considerations? Because people don't realize it, but RoboCop was a very low budget studio movie for Orion. And we'll talk about that and John Davison and what he brought to the party. That's a really good question. Uh, I, I had no thought, uh, uh, apologies to Phil and everyone else, I wasn't thinking about the the technical and production aspects at all. And I don't, I, don't, I think Ed in many ways wasn't either. We were just having fun those three months in uh, late uh, 1984. We were, we were t- uh, telling the story. And then in the rewrites with Orion, with John Davison and then Paul, um, it became a little more real, the consequences of what we had written. But at the at the beginning, really good question. We we were we were just we were just trying to tell a story, which seems to be the best way to write a movie, and then let it be somebody else's problem. Right. I mean like now, yeah. I mean now that we 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 we're, we're we're not rookies, um, and studios start yelling, we're more conscious of that, but we still, um, yeah, it's exactly right. You you, you want to let your imagination run as free as possible, and of course. I remember Ed and I had a meeting with the director at um, the, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the studio. Now they bought a building on um, Sunset Boulevard, and that was the beginning of the end for them. Was it Columbia? No. Well, your, Columbia was they, the, the Garalco building? Yeah. They, they, oh. they wanted to do um, Spider-Man, right? Oh, yes. A pre-digital, you know, uh, Cables running, the eight arms. Forget it. I mean, just forget it. There, there are things that they they couldn't do, uh, and so um, we we just didn't think about that. And and of course, John, Phil, Rob Botine, uh John, I I I know you're going to uh, want to talk about him. He's really the reason that RoboCop is as good as it is on uh, on a production level because he knew everybody he knew phil he knew rob he knew um um and and all of that that state of the art of goo and uh the height of analog production we just hit that wave well john davison was was legendary he came out of the roger corman school he was a publicist at corman's he (laughs) became a producer then he produced the howling for joe dante then he did uh, after uh, after RoboCop. He did Airplane, and you know, it just a, a really brilliant guy. And he knew how to make a movie seem a lot bigger and have much more scope than the money that was available. Because well, and he was also a mentor to a lot of us, and um, he taught me one of uh, the most valuable lessons anybody you know taught me. Um, I was having some problems with Verhoeven on Starship Troopers and went to John for some advice and saying, this is what's going on. And that's what's going on. And I was being like whiny. And he looked at me and said, well, you're fucked. And it was like <laughs> a light bulb went off in my mind and was like, of course you're right. I'm fucked. <laughs> you know? a very important thing to learn. You know? Yeah. He had a, he had a sense of humor about it all that really, um, um, took the shine off of whatever problem you had. Well, a uh, very funny guy. And I, I think I said he produced The Howling for Joe Dante. He produced Piranha. Mike Fennell produced The Howling. Yeah. Well, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, The Howling, you know, Rob's work, I think, is much better than American Werewolf. Um, much more terrifying film. Scared me almost out of the theater. Um, uh, Joe's work and, and Rob's work compared with uh, that other silly film. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you mean an American werewolf with Rick, the Oscar won by Rick Baker. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Apologies to now, whoever. The 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 problem uh with Robocop was nobody could take it seriously because of its title. John knew the script was great, and people wouldn't even read the script because the title felt cheap and cheesy, like yeah. a ripoff of Terminator or something. Sure. So it, you had trouble even getting directors to read it or and, even the special effects people, you know, it was yeah, like, yeah. Oh my God, who, yeah. know, who would ever want to make that? 
Well, you know, before, it's true. before opening the page, you know. The, 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 and Sheila Benson gave it a bad review in the LA Times, and Metavoy called the Times and said, get some other reviewer on that thing, you know, to yeah. take 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 this down. The, it's interesting, though. Stephen King has a lot to say about the B movie and how it really, and you you know Stephen, uh, Mick, um, yeah. the, uh, that the B movie can go directly at criticism of the monoculture so much easier than you know silkwood wall street whatever you you have to sort of handle the criticism in a gingerly way where the b movie could just go right at it yeah it it'll take your shit and shove it right back at you right <laughs> um so and i i think also we caught this late 80s wave of um that included uh lethal weapon and you know sort of action as a high art but also with the the, the 70s uh, uh uh vigilante stories like dirty harry and um the mechanic uh, and things like that yeah death wish even even walking tall uh, unfortunately but they, <laughs> they, they gave um all those films gave the audience agency for a brief moment uh, and there is a, a, a theory, that, not, not mine, that I, I steal and share with people about the adventure story, uh, uh, which skews male and justice is achieved extrajudiciously. If you look at Bond, he's got to go around M, mother, to get the bad guy, Similar, uh, similarly to, to Dirty Harry and, 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 and Death Wish. And, and Robocop... Uh, uh, fulfills that uh, it gives the uh, audience agency and especially in the late 80s when everything was being privatized i've you know had a, a audience members i've seen it in their faces for like an hour and whatever suddenly that somebody's doing something about this big frigging mess uh and i think that's an essential aspect of why we're here now and why it's so it's longevity well, it also mocks the law and order uh, uh, attitudes and platitudes that came out of the Reagan administration and the yeah. Nixon administration and all of yeah. that. And it's very- it, It's true. It's, I mean, it, it, well, again, uh, uh, you know, going back to Foucault uh, in, in, in um, Punishment and Discipline, he, he documents how there is a certain level of law for people who live on the street. Um, and many times people were given a pass because of how hard it was to exist in the, the in, in pre-revolutionary France and then during the empire. Now, you know, in certain places you spit, like Singapore, you're in prison for a while. Yeah, or so, caned at the very least, yeah. Yeah, so so the, the what is law enforcement and what it should be are two different things. And I think everybody knows that in the back of their mind, especially when you take your driver's test. <laughs> yeah. Well, RoboCop is one side of that coin. The other side of the coin of the oppressor and the oppressed is Mad God. Tell me a little bit about what was behind the motivation for making Mad God, the movie, Phil, that took you 30 years. Was it after you'd finish a job, you'd get back to work on Mad God and then take another job and then get back to work on it? Well, after RoboCop 2, um, I, you know, I've been thinking about this thing for a long, long time. And um, I wrote about um, 12 pages. It was kind of a poetic musing about what the feeling of the thing should be. And uh, uh, built a bunch of props and characters. And right after RoboCop 2, I uh, shot about six minutes of material and then realized the scope of the project was just too big. And um, for some strange, unknown, mysterious reason, the idea just wouldn't let me go. And um, and so I, I developed it exclusively, you know, doing storyboards and, and ideas. And I would, you know, when I, if I was on location, I'd work on it. I'd work on it after work. Um, I did... Um, you know, I studied, you know, Freud and Jung and um, uh, another one of the most valuable um, uh, 
things that I learned about filmmaking was from uh, Milos Forman. Uh, my wife was uh, in the editorial department on Amadeus, and we go out to dinner. And you know, I was asking him for advice as a young filmmaker. And again, he gave me some of the best advice, which was, um, if you want to take a good shit, you have to eat well. <laughs> and it was like, that's kind of the license, you know, the more time you have to work on something and develop it, it just, it, it cooks or gets digested in terms of his metaphor. Good in, good out. Yeah. Yeah. Is so there, anyway, that, real- that's what, there was a, there was a period you know, after you know, I shot the first six minutes or so, that was there. Then there was a twenty-year gap where I was just, you know, um, eating well. And then I don't know really how it happened, but you know, about thirteen years ago or so. Uh, oh, yeah, I was archiving it, and some of the guys in my studio, um, there were digital artists. You know, grew up on the. RoboCop, Star Wars documentaries, and that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to work with models and lights and cameras, but that ship had sailed. So uh, they asked if they could do a shot, and I had some of the old puppets left over, and they did a shot, and they said, can we do another one? And I'd show them how to do the lighting and do a setup and whatnot. Um, And then it just snowballed from there you know more people went oh hey you know do you uh need any help and uh and so i ended up getting like a relatively large crew um and uh to do a lot of the heavy lifting and um that and they all worked for free and for years and um like and you could make years. a movie the way you want to make a movie when you yeah, do well it. there's no way i was going to pitch mad god to a studio <laughs> you know? yeah. and um yeah so i just wanted to to make this you know very visceral kind of thing that was both repugnant and horrible and, and beautiful at the same time i mean visually newmeyer has mentioned this film phil is it can, can i watch it somewhere it's on shutter yeah Shutter. Yeah. Yeah. And you can get a uh, one month free um, pass there if you only so want to. So everybody watch. can watch Mad God for free. For- well, you know what? Though uh, Shutter is a <clears throat> very well curated yeah. uh, service. And particularly the horror films are, are of, of you know great interest because uh, Europeans can make horror films and we don't know how to make them you know anymore really but uh, the european stuff is really creepy and, and ghostly yeah. and very, very yeah. well produced there's I some don't know great you know stuff I, I i shot uh you uh alex cox's uh uh advanced uh project at ucla did you know uh, alex is in uh is in mad god that's what newmeyer mentioned yeah. he also um well, I'll tell you later in an email. I think I have your email. I'll, I'll, I'll mention this other thing later. It's not okay. public consumption. Well, anyway. you talk about how the changing of the guard between stop motion, analog filmmaking, and digital filmmaking. It's interesting because digital filmmaking, they're both tools in telling a story. And people are always trying to pit physical, uh, practical effects versus digital effects when they can work hand in hand really well together as, as you know, better than anybody, but the first real digital effects movie with characters, dinosaurs, Jurassic park still works like gangbusters, despite it being 1993, the story carries it. These characters have weight and there has certainly been improvement in detail, but still so many CG creations have no weight to them and they feel like you're watching a video game. Yeah. But tell me about that because, you know, Guillermo had great success with Pinocchio doing it in traditional stop motion form. So there is still stop motion animation being created, but what do you feel about being in the middle of that, Phil? You mean, uh, well, of uh, the the bridge between digital and uh, and CG uh, analog and, and yeah. yeah um well when the changeover happened you know I felt the bomb bay doors had opened you know I was about <laughs> to be slim pickings 
and uh, I got really depressed and um, uh, you know I, I got pneumonia and had to go to bed for a couple of weeks and um, you know I thought I was I was done for but you know Stephen called up and it should be no 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 we need you and you know I I overreacted emotionally to the whole you know thing but so this yeah. felt sudden to you with jurassic park suddenly well no everything i'm friends with dennis buren so i could kind of see it coming from young sherlock to the terminators but I, I had no idea that they would be able to actually construct something that looked relatively lifelike and um and so uh but you know when you know kathy kennedy called us in you know lanteri and you know winston and and dennis and me um uh, she you know i got hired because you know i knew paleontology and i knew all the dinosaurs and i knew the production process you know and um and so it was actually in retrospect you know at that time you know kind of a, a no-brainer really i didn't i didn't feel secure but i was and you ended up embracing digital technology as well because you kind of had to and you could see the value of it as a tool we had no choice but, <laughs> but it did offer you um abilities to do things that you can never do with stop motion so um you know that was interesting but it was it was a vertical climb for all of us you know it was like the very first time uh in there and the animators were all canadian they came from chenard because nobody taught computer graphics in um the states but they you know they were all of the the disney school you know of uh, you know squash and strategy whatever um you know cell animation was or flying logos and you know that kind of thing so they didn't really have any experience with doing things that had weight and mass and um, character creation and yeah. intention. Yeah. So Mike, when you're writing now, there are all these options that you're aware of. Do you realize when you're actually at the desk and at the keyboard that you can write anything and virtually anything can be made for the screen? Yeah. And you know, that's actually uh, as a, one of the things I think that, uh, people make a mistake about with Robocop is that they call it science fiction and it's really futurism. Right. Uh, and, and not very far into the future. No. And, and, you know, with Blade Runner and Road Warrior and uh, Robocop with futurism, you can get there from here. Whereas science fiction, I mean, the, some of the later uh, uh, Lucas films, they're wearing togas. It could be 3,000 years in the past or 3,000 years in the future. So I think that's an important distinction. And when I, when I was, uh, I almost, I had written something called Animal about a uh, researcher, an anti-vivisectionist, which is now in Guardians 3, who uh, develops a chemical that transforms him. But compared to the X-Men and all, uh, 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 going forward into the Marvel Universe, my creations were feeble so in a way it's limiting to me the whole fantasy universe has um because i i don't that's not something that i write about and uh, i think the audience is becoming fatigued by uh those kind of portrayals as well the um sort of uh fake mythologies compared with Cupid and Psyche and some of the, the real Greek and Roman mythologies in Ovid, those are incredible. And they have well, a psych and, and also, you know, with this, you know, back to back, like 90 minutes practically of computer graphic effects. Yeah. You know, it's just like drinking from the fire hose, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're yeah, living yeah. in a video it's like game. The, yeah. the end of a Bruckner symphony where you just want it to be <laughs> over with. Very good, very good uh, analogy. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I frankly am not enthralled, uh, enthralled by this kind of, well, let's, since we can do anything we want, let's do anything we want, which reflects right. in the larger culture in, in, in terms of genetic experimentation and AI. Uh, I think pe 
humans are a lot better at inventing than regulating what they invent. So just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. And, and, and I think that's not just in entertainment. I mean, that's in the, the technological world at large. So back circling back to my own work, um, you know, I, I, I'm more of I'm more of a futurist. Well, uh, one of the things that made RoboCop so successful is that it's got a heart. It's got a very emotional right. core. You've right. got a human being who's gone through torturous agony and loss and whose only ho hope to survive is to be partially rebuilt as a machine. But it's true. And if you look at the uh, Nolan's uh, uh, first Batman film, you know, the suit doesn't work. He crashes and burns. And there's a, and so there's a gravity to Robocop as well. It's not, we had four rules for Robocop, all of which were vi violated in the sequels, which we weren't involved in. Robocop can't be on the phone. He can't be on a bicycle. He can't kiss a girl and he can't fly. And sure enough, they have him do all of those things. <laughs> so... Well Let's go back to the problem with getting people to take the script seriously before it was sold. Right. It went to various studios. John Davison was flogging it uh, as a, an excellent producer would. Um, but directors were passing on it. The title was its worst enemy and yet its biggest marketing hook. So right. tell me about the problems of getting a director and how it finally worked out with Paul Verhoeven who would be a very unlikely choice despite doing such amazing stuff in Soldier of Orange and Spetters and, you know, uh, amazing yeah. Dutch films. Well, we had so many uh, pieces of luck, in, including uh, Phil's involvement, uh, but it really did start with um, Fox and, and, and Columbia passing and Davison uh, walking it into Orion where Barbara Boyle, his colleague from uh, uh, New, New World, uh, had done uh, the, the Madonna film and just was a real like production maniac. And Metavoy being the gunslinger he is with um, Amadeus and Terminator and uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs, you know, he, he was like the United Artists model. Let's see what these guys can come up with. And there, there was very little supervision. So it ended up allowing all of us uh, the writers, the director, the producer, uh, and Phil and, and all of his colleagues to just like supply the best thing that they knew how to do. Um, and I, I always, I had a theory that that um, uh, African-American and European directors did violence a lot better than uh, their American counterparts. If you look at the Hughes brothers, Polanski, Verhoeven, um, Milos Forman, uh, their portrayal of violence was that it's quick, it's bloody, and there are consequences compared with someone like Tarantino and his colleagues where somebody's um, head gets blown off in the back of a car. And now, oh, the big joke is, hey, how do we clean this thing up? Um, so uh, that treatment of violence was, uh, you know, I suggested, let, let's, look, let's look at Verhoeven. Soldier of Orange is is very mean, but also has laughs in it. it, it the, yeah. the, the violence is followed by absurd humor, which and is the what fourth happened. man is another one that has really uh, conflicting uh, yeah. points of view. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's an interesting tone. I mean, it's sort of it's melodrama, uh, uh, but the good kind of melodrama where the vi the, the volume is about ten percent louder than it should be, and Paul's very good at that. You know, he's good at hysteria. He's good at um, uh, uh, a radical portrayal of fear. Uh, he's just not afraid of those things. Um, so we got so lucky with Paul. Hey, you I know, the, the story that John mentioned to me, and I, I don't know, I always kind of took it as like urban mythology. But, he, you know, all these directors were passing on it you know it was like starting with the a list directors and going down with the c list directors <laughs> and he said that he was going through the director's you know dictionary or whatever and and he got down to v that was the last 
letter that he looked at and he saw Verhoeven. And I, I seriously doubt that's true, but that's what he said. Help me, Obi-Wan Verhoeven. You're our last hope. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when, when you were in the construction phase of the models, Phil, tell me how that came about. You were making miniatures. How big were the miniatures? Well, 209 was about a foot tall. Yeah. You know, and, and um which was a comfortable size, you know. Uh that Ray always characterized his his puppets as like being about the size of a small cat, you know, something uh, that you could get your hands on and, and actually move around. And um and I am not very good at doing, you know, mechanically oriented designs. I've I've got really no sense of hard surface designs so you're more helps. about creatures that live. yeah yeah or, organic stuff and so i was really lucky when i was on i think it was howard the duck um we go oh, over God. to this guy's uh barbecue and uh well at ilm while we were working at ilm and i ran into this kid i mean he wasn't more than like 18 or 19 years old yeah, no formal training at all, self-taught. And he brought in a couple of model parts that, that he'd made. And it was like, he, you know, I just kind of found this Mozart of a guy that knew materials and could visualize, um, you know, the thing and knew how to put this together. I mean, the uh, <coughs> RoboCop 2 uh, model was incredibly complicated, unbelievably complicated. And I think Craig was somewhere out there on the, you know. This is Craig who? Craig Hayes. He, he Craig designed Hayes. it through right. and on. Right. And uh, somewhere out there on the scale, you know, where he was just able to embrace all of this stuff and see it as a whole and then kind of knew how to, get there so I, I was really well we all were really lucky that craig was there to design that thing how did you get that first star wars job with the chess characters uh george uh didn't get everything that he wanted in england with stuart uh freeborn's uh, material i think stuart got uh, <clears throat> phlebitis or something so he was compromised and they didn't have hardly any money. So I think that it, it kind of like, you can see it, you know, it looked like they had to raid the costume department for like Beatrix Potter, you know, <laughs> things. And so, so George uh, talked Fox out of some money to do a bunch of inserts and uh, hired uh, Rick Baker to supervise a bunch of stop motion animators. There were about four of us. And we did the, um, you know, a, a bunch of masks. We, yeah, you know, and George's direction was like build as many uh, space aliens as you possibly can in six weeks. Right. And, um, and uh, so while we were working on that, he would come by every way a week and check out what we were doing. And he saw a stop motion puppet that I had made, you know, when I was much younger. And, um, and just, you know, Around that time, Crichton had come out with, uh, I think it was West, no, it wasn't Westworld, but it was one of those things. Anyway, uh, and he had this hologram scene <clears throat> with these knights, and they were just guys on a you know big checkerboard, and they were supposed to be small, and it was like, oh, God, you know my movie's going to look similar and then he saw the stop motion puppet he goes hey can you guys do that and it's like yeah he said well can you make me you know as many stop motion puppets as you can in two weeks <laughs> it's, it's right at the end of the schedule and, no uh, problem george <laughs> yeah so that that started that ball rolling yeah Did you see any, have you seen any uh cuts or outtakes from star wars by that point no, uh, 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 we were invited to uh, George screen the cantina scene and the chess scene for us, and so. But we were in pig heaven, you know. We had just been working on television commercials all the time, which was a right, great right. graduate school because the turnover was so 
so fast, you got to learn, you know, a lot about uh, how this stuff went together. And we had a great mentor at Cascade Pictures of California, Phil Kellison, who was this really sweet guy and would let us work after hours on our own projects. And um, I forgot where I was going with that anyway. So uh, just one little clawback. Um, uh, Rockwood Joffrey and Hoyt Yateman did a matte painting and a rear projection for me on my advanced project at UCLA. And Hoyt talked a lot about Dave Allen. Yeah. Uh, one of so. the greats. I mean, the the spirit of Ray Harryhausen was captured by so many of his fans and acolytes, uh, you among them, that that kept the stop motion game going and even improving on it, which was pretty spectacular. Yeah, we were lucky. In the right place at the right time, you know. I mean, uh, there weren't that many people doing it. Yeah. And, um, and I never worried about... Um, I was always a gig worker and, and that worked out really well for me because you could work, you know, for two weeks and get like, you know, earn enough money because everything was really cheap back then and have like three weeks off or one month on and two months off and, and like, so it allowed you to, you know, earn money and take time to work on your own, own projects. So that was, uh, you know, that was really really quite convenient and you know i just i just waited for the telephone to ring yeah, yeah it, was my, really a small, my... it, it was really one of the things it was really a small world rocco was being mentored by matt urisich and you know who, who else besides matt was was doing that kind of brilliant work yeah yeah mentoring was was very important and uh you know younger guys today don't don't really have the same access that that we did you know back in the day you know, I mean, I uh, I um, was working on this um, in, um, independent project of one of the stories, Sound of Thunder, and he was speaking at a local community college, and I uh, um, went there with the, the, the script that Bill Stromberg had written, and I built a stop-motion dinosaur, and I showed him some stuff. And... Um, and... Uh, I gave him a contact and he wrote back and he said, you know, if you make any money off of this, I'm going to sue you. And, but, but, but that started a, uh, you know, a, a conversation that went on for years and years and years, you know, I had all these letters from him and I don't know what the fuck happened to him. And, um, and so Ray, you know, back in the day in the, in the late sixties, his philosophy was love, love, love. You know, like John Lennon, you have to do what you love, because if you do that and fail, you'll be in a far better position than if you don't try and never knew. And right. the nomenclature changes over the years to from love, love, love to follow your bliss and then um, to follow your passion. And so I looked up passion in the dictionary and it comes from the Latin Patai, which means to suffer. <laughs> you know, which, um, well, well Mick, you know, I've got to say, you're, you're describing Mick your your uh, uh, attitude and approach as well, because you're just, you know, talking to everybody and your own work is is, is very prolific, and oh, and I don't you. see uh, a, a lot of people. Uh, I don't think you have uh, you're in too many people's black book. <laughs> well, here's hoping, or uh, they keep it a secret, but. But, uh, you know, it's the Dick Smith philosophy, um, you know, the great, the father of modern makeup effects. He was so open with all of his ideas, all these young guys, Tom Savini and Rick Baker and and all would call Dick Smith. How do you do this? And he was so generous because he was a trailblazer. It was the same th sort of thing as it seems Ray Harryhausen was. Um Talking about love, 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 I hear that that was not the philosophy of the set of RoboCop, that there was a lot of stress and a lot of um, discomfort on the RoboCop set. Now, often that yeah. makes for good movies, but not always. In this case, it did. Michael, tell me, what, what was it like to enter the war zone of RoboCop? Well, Ed was on the set of uh, 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 more than I was. I was uh, scheduled to do the second unit, and I 
looked at Ed and Paul and went, that person is going to get creamed. So I went away and did a, a low budget feature directed, wrote and directed for Charlie Band, ah. <laughs> which was its own uh, uh, circus of fun. Yes, but, Charlie's been on the show as well. <laughs> but I've been, I, I, you know, I kept getting messages from Ed, and then I was there for three weeks. Um, and, 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 but I didn't catch uh, the shit show at the beginning with the suit and all of that. I just heard that from from Ed, but I did manage to show up for the gasoline, uh, the gas station explosion because I had a scene specifically Ed Davison had done all this work to get Shell Motor Company because I put in two other scripts, Shell, Shell uh, Gas, the explosion pops off the S so you get hell and flames. <laughs> And Paul had shot that. And I went, oh, shit, man, I finally got it into a film. And then Paul cut it out. Nah. Yeah. You can see it for about 16 frames, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you blink. Um, so I, maybe he didn't understand the joke. I mean, that's a quibble compared to I don't have any other criticisms. Well, I know but that the, the actual construction of the costume for Peter Weller was very complex. And I know Rob Bottin and I know... He did the thing and he did the howling before that. Uh, and he also works on a clock painted by Dolly. Um, <laughs> right. That's that, why Davison, you know, and he have, have had so many fallings out and then reconciliations because, I mean, you, if you look at the new RoboDoc, um, Ed and, and, and John and Paul and I had ideas, but basically rob uh, uh, along with this his uh, uh, assistant really perfected the shape and the look of robocop right you know, and the, the the choreographer who helped peter uh, weller do his, his work actually helped to streamline the costume it, it's very well illustrated in the documentary which is oh the the you know movie couldn't have been made without him yeah yeah he had to clear all of the joints in the costume so that there were elbows and there were shoulders and there were knees and there were hips. Yeah. Otherwise, his, he was so restricted, he couldn't, not just couldn't act, but couldn't move. Well, and how he built the pantomime, too, was, uh, you know, really the mark of a pro. You know, Robo moves from his chest and then he moves yeah. his head. And right. it's like a bunk, 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 bunk. I mean, it's beautifully, you know, choreographed, choreographed pantomime. Well, it's and so well thought out. The, the brain was put in the chest, and so the chest leads. Yeah, yeah. And without without Paul, uh, Peter having that relationship ahead of time, uh, and trusting this guy, then it got to this crisis point, and he came back in and settled Peter down. I, I mean, though, though we had like ten lucky things happen uh, for it to become what it was. I remember when uh, I, I had this fantasy about. Um, uh, what's his name? George Cosmatos, who came in to 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 uh, meet about Robocop. Uh, no disrespect intended, but you can imagine Robocop arriving at the precinct. Uh, he would kick open the door, and this guy in a wetsuit, including the flippers, would flop <laughs> in with a little with a little snorkel, right? And he'd say. <laughs> gurgle, gurgle. With, with with um you know sparkles on it right <laughs> glitter hey you know and speaking of paul being difficult you know when we were finished shooting the boardroom scene you know i went up to him and said hey can i uh have a minute with you and he was standing by the ocp uh city with that blood splatter and he put both of his hands down on it and he bowed his head and he said, I suppose you're going to tell me I'm fucked. Uh, you know, I, I'm fucked up, you know, like everybody else. And I went like, no, I was just going to tell you, um, I'm done here for a while. And, you know, I, I'm going to go back and work with my guys and, you know, get ready for the boardroom scene. And I was like, Hmm. Okay. <laughs> and that was some of the stuff with with ed too going into it um you know because paul didn't know uh any, anything about visual effects uh at that time 
And how are we going to create that 209 stuff? And so I proposed that um, that we build two at 209s. One would be full scale, and the other for you know live action shots. Because I didn't want to do blue screen backgrounds of Ronnie Cox giving his spiel, and because that just that stuff looks terrible. So we needed an actual physical prop in the set for the those you know heavy duty dialogue scenes, and then the ambulatory stuff was all done with stop motion and um but then you've got this big prop sitting on the <laughs> on the set and that's that's just not enough so i proposed that once he comes in and shuts down you keep him alive with this bass pedal note there's just this hum this kind of unsettling quasi subwoofer noise that's going yeah. on that, that uh, keeps him present, you know, as an entity and not just as a sculpture. And Is Paul would always go for that. You know, he would always go for, you know, you know, an idea. Was that, that humming noise? Was that Steve Flick who came up yeah. with that? Yep. Wow. So Michael, what's your fondest memory before we close out here? What's your fondest memory of RoboCop? I mean, it led to sequels, it led to a TV series, but your personal experience with this movie? Well, I, again, it's got to be the process of writing a script. We, uh, Ed and I would, um, what, what's the Orion uh, option? And we got into the second, uh, third, fourth, and fifth draft. We worked at the Tara building uh, uh, over, that since was turned down over the Culver Studios. And- um, Tara from Gone with the Wind, yeah. And, and pacing, typing, pacing, um, you know, for example, uh, the topper line at the end of the film, we'd sort of bankrupt ourselves completely and we were fucked. <laughs> and here's Clarence Boddicker hovering over uh, a, 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 the Robocop covered in debris. And Ed said, we've got to have a line here. We've got to have a line all day, all day, all day. What about this? What about that? And Ed said, no, it's not good enough. I wanted to strangle him. And finally, I just blurted out, sayonara, Robocop. Boing! And he said, that's it! And so, those kinds of things, it was heavy lifting, every line. I think that's why the script is so tight, because we we pretty much legislated everything, which is what, as, you know, uh, the, the Miller's Foreman thing and your mad god creation i've been working on a uh, streaming series about artificial uh, intelligence and it's taken eight years to get it to this point you know uh embarrassingly more like 10 but that's why it's good you know and instant gratification is, is now seems to be the rule of the day and and it just i don't think it'll ever happen uh you know when when uh i sent uh paul some uh, you know dvds of, of mad god uh, and, and then when it was finished, he, or he wanted to see the, the completed thing because he wanted to go through it one frame at a time. And uh, he said, you know, when I make my Jesus film, I want to, you to do uh, the the part when Jesus meets Satan. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. That's a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was writing the script. It, it was writing the script. That was really a real, real great, great ride. How about for you, Phil? What is your most memorable moment of working on RoboCop? Um, it was uh, working with Frank Curiosity. And uh, so uh, um, we would shoot the background plates and I'd go up and work with um, Frank. Uh, he had a, a eight per for VistaVision background because that's how I, you know, one of the widest format camera to get the most fit. Uh, I mean, a uh, um, negative to uh, or print. The greatest detail with the least grain. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and boy, you know, he was not happy with me at <laughs> all and, uh, because it was all new to him. And um, he said, "How can I cut this together? How long do I know what the timing is for for this? It's just like empty shots, and there's no robot or anything in it." You know, for most of the stuff. I mean, we did use uh, the uh, the the big Ed Two Hundred Nine for lighting references for just about everything. But how 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 am I supposed to know how long this thing is supposed to go on? 
And I just, ah, you know, what, you know, follow the action that's there. And he said, what if there's no action in the background? It was like, well, just allow four or six seconds. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, most of the shots are around, you know, between, you know, around four seconds, you know, in an action movie. So just uh, do it like that. And he was like kind of grumpy about it. But then it turned out, he turned out to be my, actually my savior on the thing. Um, and I think John had a lot to do with this was as I started generating the shots, um, uh, uh, they wouldn't show it to Paul because they knew it would fry his brain, you know, uh -huh. and that he would feel compelled to direct stuff that he had no idea, you know, how to direct and right. <laughs> worrying about details. And so Frank and, and John wouldn't let him see anything until his uh, uh, sequence was cut. And then he'd look uh -huh. at it and go like, oh, yeah. And there were no retakes or anything. There were no adjustments. I mean, well, 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 well Phil, I don't want to cut you off, but the integration of the close-ups when Ed walks into the boardroom with uh, the big model uh, really give it the weight and substance when the foot lifts off and uh, uh, the driver bolts turn you really get a sense of the weight of the thing. It's really storyboarded so beautifully. Yeah, well, that's all Paul, you know, really doing that. There's one shot, God, I'm going to mess up on the guy's name. He's a famous photographer that would do still lifes with, um, like, human heads or, mm. um, you Joel, know. Joel Peter Whitkin. Joel Peter Whitkin. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the shots when, Ed 209's foot comes down, made a miniature set of, of the OCP boardroom. And essentially all it is is a gray carpet and a, and a wall. And so I got a, a, a picture of um, a Whitkin print. And it was of this guy laying on this table with a rope tied around his dick that went up to a pulley and had like a 10-pound weight on it or something like that. <laughs> and so I made like a little frame and that's what the picture is on the on the wall in the background, you know, for <laughs> that foot coming down shot. And you know, it's there, you know. Now nice that one. sounds like that sounds like a great time to wrap up <laughs> <laughs> on that image. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, it was great to bring a little reunion together here at the last minute. Yeah. Mick, thank you very much. I I, I haven't been able to spend that much time with Phil. And obviously, he's a kindred spirit. I, I really appreciate uh, your giving us the time. Thank you, Mick. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Everybody should check out the documentary on Streambox and on uh, streaming wherever you can find it. And, um, you know, happy RoboCop. Thank you, Mick. Thank okay. you, guys. Phil I'll, Phil, I'll email you a little bit later. All okay. right. Take All care. Right. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.